0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
2: I mean, ICJP is preparing war crimes cases against commentators oh. and politicians in yep. the UK and across the globe. Do you believe in the system?
3: Is Valora is an ass really
2: to you? There is no doubt in my mind that the United States is responsible for, and is the gatekeeper mm. for what is and what is not human rights or an international law violation. Right. It's not so much the law that's the ass, it's the political will and the politician. Are you not just throwing stones or pebbles at a tank here? You kill every man, woman and child in infant
3: suckling, ox and calf. Turkey tomorrow, Qatar or you know, UAE or Saudi Arabia, you know, who have been vocal to various degrees, they could trigger this genocide uh, convention.
2: If it doesn't do that, what is it? It becomes an imperialistic tool for the West. The British government's created this fiction and I'll be challenging that in court in the next coming months.
3: When we consider the disgraceful actions of the Israeli state, it becomes evident that they operate in a system of impunity. From the very early days of this slaughter, the diplomatic, economic and military cover provided by the West has unleashed a genocidal war machine intent on ethnically cleansing Gaza and removing its indigenous people, the Palestinians, from their ancestral homes. In an act of perverse precision, the Israeli war machine decimated Gaza's archival buildings as a symbol of its desire to erase Palestinian history. But what, if anything, can we do about this? My guest today, Tayyab Ali, is a lawyer specialising in counterterrorism, international security and international law. He has represented clients in the Supreme Court, the European Court of Human Rights, as well as at international and political legal institutions, including the United Nations, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and the African Commission of Human Rights, Human and People's Rights. He's the director of the International Center of Justice for Palestinians, the ICJP. Tayyab Ali, Alaikum salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Thank you very much. Well, it's wonderful to have you with us. Now, Tayyab, you have gone on record to suggest that Israel and the West would not get away with, would be brought to trial for their complicity in the current, I don't know what we can call it, slaughter or genocide even of Palestinians. What makes you so certain we have
2: to be certain about this. We haven't a choice. What's happened in Israel and, and Gaza um, over the last few weeks is so profound. It's, it's, so, um, it's, it's such a mark on our historic uh, trajectory. that if we let this pass without, without doing something about it, and, and this includes doing something about what happened in Israel and doing something about what's currently happening and been happening in Palestine, what it means is that in the next event, the next war, mm. where we leave off here is where the next regime, whoever that might be, will start. Yeah. And if we see the devastation that's happened in uh, Gaza in particular over the last few weeks, we, we can't allow that to be a starting point for the next conflict, whoever is the instigator of that or whoever is the protagonist mm. involved in that. Mm. And, and I think what's happened in Gaza is, is such, of, of such magnitude, such significance that the international community really cannot just let it happen and allow Israel to be protected by the impunity that it's been protected for mm. over the last 75 years. I don't mm. think that's an acceptable position. I think what, what that means for various institutions, various governments around the globe, yeah. is that these values, these institutions, these beliefs, the, the failure to do something will be existential mm. to those institutions, to those beliefs, to those values. People just won't believe that there is a system anymore. Do you believe in the system? Is, is the law an
3: ass, really, to you?
2: Well, often it appears to be, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's a it's a really important question. And I think that it's not so much the law that's the ass. It's the political will and the politician that are asses, if you like. <laughs> and I think that's where the problem really lies, because the law is good. Yes. Um, we had in uh, the Second World War a really devastating event, the Holocaust, mm-hmm. that that event really set the tone for how human beings were going to have relationships with each other and how um, conduct conduct um, war even with each other. Yeah. And that's termed international law, international humanitarian law. Yeah. And so when you have something so significant happen, instill in living memory of some people, um, and then you develop a system which came directly from the ashes of World War II, and you say, well, actually, we need to stop that from ever happening again. And you've heard arguments, haven't you, with politicians recently who talk about things like, well, Israel is allowed to do what it's doing because British um, forces did it in Dresden to defeat the Nazis. And I was asked the question in one of my talks, um, if we didn't bomb Japan and if we didn't go in and kill those civilians in World War II, would we have even won? Would we have defeated the Nazis? And I think the response to that and the point I'd like to make is that it was that very notion... It was that very reality, immediate memory of what happened in World War II mm. that meant that people came together from across the globe with their differences and agreed to a system to try to prevent that from ever happening again. Now, that law is good law, right? The problem that we have is the political will attached to that law and to actually make that law effective. That's where the real problem is. But there's a unique element to this, which is something that at the ICGP that we're we're developing and we're looking at, which is that the law is sophisticated enough to recognize and understand complicity. And so what does that mean in this context? That Mm. means if there is an actor that perpetrates a war crime or a violation of international law, and there is another actor, a politician, a military personnel a supplier of weapons that is helping that act to happen with knowledge of what they're doing then that person becomes complicit right. and what we've done as international lawyers for far too long is to ignore that 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 that, that um, concept of complicity yeah. but i think this is something that's particularly different now and so for example um, at the ICJP, we're preparing criminal prosecution files yeah. against commentators and politicians and weapon suppliers that we feel and that there is sufficient evidence to show that they're actually complicit in the primary persons criminal act so it's not it's not the law that's an ass mm. it's the it's the administration of it that's that's wrong right. it's the lack of will political will to do something about it that's problematic
3: but i do worry about the actual notion of international law right. i mean of course at a domestic level statute law is pretty strong and you know if your rights are abused you do have recourse, generally speaking, although you know, you've you been involved in counterterrorism terrorism uh, trials where that may not be apparent, immediately at least, but generally speaking, there is a law there to protect you and your civil liberties. Is there really a code, a, a series of laws at an international level that ensures uh, the, the rights of human beings uh, internationally, say in this case in Palestine, and it, are these laws as strong as statute law
2: domestically? Well, I mean, you you point out a a particular uh, important question, which um, requires us to have a look at how international law is constructed. So international law is constructed by agreement, different to domestic law. In domestic law, we have um, not so much an agreement. We elect a government. This is in a parliament in Western democracies at at the very least. And they then decide what's right and wrong in that particular state, and they codify it. Now, that codification of that... Is applied some might say unequally even within national jurisdictions. so you have situations for example yeah. where people complain about politicians breaking the law for example and getting away with it yeah. right and so sometimes you do see that breakdown in what you might consider to be a fair process I mean you, you have for example um, situations where uh, the public interest test is applied in a domestic situation mm-hmm. where a prosecutor interfered with by government in some cases, decides to investigate fraud against a weapons manufacturer, for example, decides to investigate um, war crimes, even on a domestic level, and decides decides that the prosecution shouldn't happen because it's not in the public interest. Mm -hmm. You have that interference. So you have that breakdown in a domestic setting as well. But generally speaking, you're right to identify that in a domestic setting, it works properly. The difference in international law is that it's done by treaty, really. I mean, you have the UN Charter, and the UN Charter is a set of rules agreed upon by various different countries sure. that come together and that constitutes the United Nations. Yes. Then you have various individual treaties that people either adopt to either fully or in people's states adopt either fully yeah. or in part. Yeah. And they have the accountability structures within those treaties adopted either fully or in part. Yeah. Then you've got the International Criminal Court, the Rome Statute, right. which, people, which states also sign up to and bring themselves in the jurisdiction of the International Criminal yeah. Court. Yeah. And very importantly, America hasn't. And very importantly, states like the United Kingdom yeah. that have often tried to undermine the ICC. So with regards to Israel, for example, yeah. there's an investigation open with the ICC um, with regards to uh, the occupied territories. And Boris Johnson, as a conservative government at that stage, said that um, this was an affront to our relationship with Israel and shouldn't happen, and the ICC right. shouldn't. So there's that interference. Yes. Ultimately, the... Uh, the, we, we need to, we rely in terms of international law on states behaving themselves and conducting themselves properly. Yeah. And what you have is the United Nations General Assembly and you have the Security Council. Yeah. And that's the two places where that arbitration happens between states and countries when decisions are made have the, have the right to um, sanction a state that isn't complying with it, yeah. or have a right to disengage with them when they're not complying with it. But you're right to recognize this. It's an immature system at the moment. Right. And so really what happens is that we need to put pressure Mm. on these international institutions to do their job properly. We need to put pressure on states to uphold and apply the international framework that we have in place at the moment. Yeah,
3: I want to come back to the ICC and its role uh, and maybe its uh, inability to deal with uh, the crisis that's currently uh, taking place, unfolding in Gaza. But we hear a lot in the news about the Geneva Convention, the Fourth Geneva Convention, mm. and um, there's some discussion about how uh, maybe the United States has been lobbying uh, Switzerland. Uh, I don't know how that works, but lobbying Switzerland uh, to somewhat dilute that convention so that it doesn't apply so stringently to Israel, and maybe that's a recognition that Israel has gone beyond, uh, you know, it's it's beyond what is acceptable. Um, doesn't that show us that, that uh, these conventions, these, uh, uh, as you call them, treaties between states are subject to political interference on a day-to-day level?
2: They're, they're totally subject to interference right. on a day-to-day level. I mean, right. that's absolutely right. You recognise No, that. no, no, it's, it's completely right. Yeah. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that the United States is responsible for, and is the gatekeeper mm. for what is and what is not uh, human rights or an international law violation. Right. Right. And it does it very much in its own political interest. There's yes. just no doubt about that. Really. And so where you have a situation where an ally state is, um, is committing a war crime, it's not a surprise that the allies that support that and to some degree are complicit in it will want to dilute the international legal framework. And, yeah. and wh- where you have this debate, you have this debate where um, states are saying, well, look, you know, um, the way that we conduct wars right now is different to the yeah. way we conducted wars 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago. Yes. And so, therefore, we need to update the um, conventions. We need to update the international law. We need... well, that's not really what they're saying, because the law doesn't need to be updated in that way. If anything, it needs to be strengthened, right. not, not, not weakened. Yes. What they're really saying is that we've been caught out, Right. We've, we've exported these values, Western values of democracy, of human rights, of international law, international humanitarian law yeah. for decades. And we've used it as a stick to beat other states that we say aren't complying with it. Mm. And now that it's become very apparent yeah. that we're not complying with it or our allies are not complying with it, we, we need to change it, right? It's just an admission of guilt, if you ask me. Yeah. And, and that's what we're seeing happen. And so what's happening here is that people around the world, independently, lawyers, um, countries, other states, are starting to realise that actually these values that the West were exporting, they're not standing up to them. There's a disconnect, right, between the political class and everybody else. So you see hundreds of thousands of people going out on the streets, week on week on week, saying, hang on a minute, you've been telling us that democratic values, British values, mean that we are fair to each other, we apply to a codified system of law, mm. we don't just go and kill people, we don't blow up civilians, we don't do any of this stuff. That's kind of what we bought into. Yeah, we've got problems with our mortgages, we've got problems with cost of living, we've got all of that, but yeah. we also have TV sets and mobile phones and we yes. see what's happening to people on the other side of the world. And when we saw that happening in the Ukraine, for example, we all bought into that. We were like, yeah, this is great. You know, we need to stop this from happening. We can do something about it. And, and the Western powers supported that movement. Yeah. And then we saw it again in Israel. In yeah. fact, we saw it um, f- worse in Israel, a number of times worse in Israel. And we said the same thing. We said, hang on a minute, this is not right. We don't want Israelis to be doing this to Palestinians. Yeah. And the West said, what, well, what, what? No, we, we, we support actually what's happening in there. Israel has a right to self-defense. Yeah. Um, all these platitudes that they said about what was going on there. But people are not accepting that. They're just not accepting that. And so what you've got a situation is where you have this huge disconnect. But the disconnect, the disconnect will change, in my view. Over a period of time, you will get institutions such as the ICC, institutions such as the United Nations, institutions such as um, the, Af- well, not so much institutions, but institutions inside global South countries yes. who will step back and go, well, hang on a minute. We don't agree with what's happening here. We think we can do something about it. Right. And that's a mistake in the West because these values that we've enshrined into international law are important. They can be effective. Mm. It doesn't just need the United States mm-hmm. and Britain and Europe to make them effective. Right. There's the rest of the world as well. Yes. And I think they've been ignored for long enough. I yeah. think they know they've been ignored for long enough. Yes. And I think there's time now that other uh, champions of international law come forward yeah. and, and correct this big mistake that's being made at the moment. Are you not
3: just throwing stones or pebbles at a tank here. I mean, you know, the United yes. States, Britain, France, the collective weight of Western countries are, you know, even if, if public statements say otherwise, are pretty much behind Israel. And they will protect and defend Israel in all of these institutions. And so it is inconceivable maybe to some that Israel would ever find itself in the dock,
2: um, you know, stand in trial for, for war crimes. I mean, it feels that way, right? right? Right now, right where we're in it. But yeah. but let's just look at it from a different perspective, okay? Impunity of Israeli war crimes is actually a curse right. because what happens when you give impunity to a group of people um, and, and allow them to perpetrate criminal acts without any accountability, it makes the other side hmm. turn away from law, turn away from international institutions, turn away from um, other states to say, well, actually, you know, I'm going to talk to your big brother about this and I want them to intervene and do something about this. And the big brother says, oh, really, my my little brother was hitting you. I'm just going to give him a bigger stick. Right. And they turn to violence. So if you want to get to a stage where we have security for Israelis, you have to give security to Palestinians. If you fail to give security to Palestinians, you're not going to have security for Israelis. It's that simple. So right now, right now, in the heat of the moment where you have Israel bombarding thousands of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and you have acts of um, uh, international law violations in the West Bank with yeah. impunity, yeah. it feels a bit like a hopeless task. It yeah. feels like we're throwing pebbles. Yeah. But it's really important to keep that momentum going, because at some point, people are going to recognize yeah. that in order to break this cycle of violence, we have to create a system of equal rights for both Palestinians and Israelis, where if a Palestinian violates international law or domestic law or an Israeli violates international or domestic law, the accountability, the remedy, and the punishment for those is the same. And until we get to that position, you're going to perpetuate a cycle of violence. And I think from from some of the conversations I've had with people, um, Israelis um, as well as Palestinians, I think there's a profound recognition of that that there needs to be something else other than uh, this perpetuation of the cycle of violence. And if anybody thinks that Benjamin Netanyahu is going to remain Prime Minister of Israel when this war finishes, they're certainly dreaming, or they're listening to him directly, Mm. because people both in Israel and the West and Palestinians think that he is a primary cause of what's happening here Um, right now.
3: Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the Geneva Convention. I, I understand Article 33... Uh, outlaws uh, what we call collective punishment. Yeah. Now, what we see happening in Gaza can only be described as collective punishment. Uh, why is it that um, international bodies have been so slow to utilize the Geneva Convention uh, to point out that uh, Israel's actions break this international law?
2: Okay, so so first of all, Article 33, which outlines or uh, makes acts which amount to collective punishment unlawful. Yeah. It's a very distinct aspect of the Geneva Conventions, and, right. it's, and it's correct that it's unlawful. Yeah. But the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court was jurisdiction over Gaza hmm. um, and the West Bank. And ju- Why does it have jurisdiction over Gaza? Because in 2014, the prosecutor and the court accepted jurisdiction over this because okay. the Palestinian Authority um, signed what's called an Article Twelve Three declaration, which, is, which brings their state... Under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So, what yes. they said is they invited, it's the same way as Britain, France, and right. other state members have done. Yeah. They brought themselves under the jurisdiction of the Even International Criminal Court.
3: Even though they're Criminal not Court. a nation state in any, in, a, in, a, in any formal sense.
2: Well, I mean, they consider themselves to be a state. Yes. Of I course. mean, states, the, that, that debate about whether they're a state or not is yeah. different. But the body of people that constitute under that authority, the Palestinian Authority, yeah can sign the Article 12.3 declaration and, and bring themselves down. And, okay. and it was accepted in court, but that's what happened. So they okay. are, as far as the IC's, ICC is concerned, um, under their jurisdiction. So any criminal act that happens within the occupied territory since 2014 going forward yeah. is uh, subject to the ICC's jurisdiction. Okay. So since 2014. So yeah, come back to the um, collective punishment. Collective punishment. Yeah. Yes. So the collective punishment issue here is that it's, it's, it's an anomaly, actually. The icc Rome statute doesn't have collective punishment as a crime, yeah. and the United Kingdom doesn't prosecute collective punishment under the, the concepts of universal jurisdiction. Right. However, collective punishment is a series of war crimes done together against a series of people, and each of those individual crimes certainly are prosecutable at the ICC yeah. and prosecutable here in the United Kingdom, in our domestic jurisdiction, right, and and that's because of the Fortuny Convention, Article yeah. One Hundred Forty-Seven. Yeah. and I'm just gonna I'm gonna list them for you. Please. Okay, so willful killing, torture, in, inhumane treatment, uh, willful causing of great suffering or serious injury to body or health. Unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement of a protected person. Compelling a protected person to serve in the force of a hostile power or willfully depriving a protected person of the rights of fair and regular trial prescribed in the present convention. Taking of hostages or prisoners, depending on what label you want to give to them. Um, Extensive, and I I don't mean this in terms of the hostages taken by Hamas. I'm talking about Israel's proportion of taking prisoners, but they could be considered to be hostages too. Right. Extensive destruction and appropriation of property, not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and, and wantonly. So when you, when, when you perpetrate those acts against a series of people, not just the Hamas individuals that you are targeting or you say you're targeting, yeah. then that's collective punishment and that's a war crime. And, and how that, why that's relevant to what we're talking about is because whilst the ICC doesn't have it as a specific crime, and whilst the United Kingdom doesn't have it as a specific crime, you have the special tribunals which can constitute under their mandate that as a special crime. So, for example, the Rwanda, the special tribunal for Rwanda and Sierra Leone, both listed um, collective punishment as a specific offence and prosecuted. And that might happen if, for example, the United Nations decides that the ICC, for one, one reason or another, cannot prosecute right. um, the Israeli leadership, military personnel, yeah. um, and political leadership, and decides to create a special tribunal, which is not that unreasonable. Uh, uh, thing but it's happen. only the
3: Security Council that has the permission to do that, and
2: you know we can't conceive. I, th- I think, I think what, what political leaders, you say you can't conceive it, I yeah. can, uh-huh. right? So we have had history, particularly when we're talking about America that might make make the decision because it holds the power of veto. Yeah. Do I think that it's unrealistic that a foreign leader allied to the United States will fall out of favor? Mm. Well, let's ask Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, shall we? Right. Right? Because today's friend might be tomorrow's enemy. Right. And and you might want to think about a situation in Israel where the West finally comes to the realization, which they obviously know already. Yeah that Israel is perpetrating war crimes or is alleged to be perpetrated, or there's evidence that Israel is perpetrating war war crimes in that region. And you get to a situation what happens next? Well, what happens to Benjamin Netanyahu and his immediate leadership structure if the West decide that actually we can't do business with them anymore and states in the region can't do business with them anymore? Do I think it's unrealistic that Benjamin Netanyahu and the far right, leadership within that government and some generals might be, if you want, um, held accountable so that we can have a new start to what happens in Israel, I think that's a possibility. I don't think that um, it's unrealistic. I don't think that that political class in Israel can be sure when this war is over that they might not be held accountable by the United Kingdom, Europe, West and other states.
3: Right. Um, On a domestic front, we've seen a slew of politicians, Conservative and Labour, who have uh, gone on record suggesting that Israel has the absolute right to self-defence. When they have been questioned, uh, David Lammy comes to mind when he was questioned about the siege. Keir Starmer, of course, when he was questioned by uh, Nick Ferrari about the siege. You know, he, in effect, gave it a green light at the very early stages of the war. Um, Are there any domestic statutes where
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Well, I mean, let's just talk about, let's not talk about individuals just for the moment, right? Um, I mean, ICJP is preparing war crimes cases against commentators Ah. and politicians in the UK and across the globe for complicity in war crimes in Israel. So that's happening. Ah. And um, as a responsible uh, organization. Yeah. We don't want to say we're going to af- after this particular politician or that particular... I don't think that's right. I don't yeah. think that's fair. Yeah. And we uh, will adopt the same protocols as a, uh, as a state level prosecutor does, which is um, to prepare our cases and submit them for consideration by a, a court or, or a law enforcement agency. Right. But it's really clear, okay? Mm-hmm. It's really clear. Just under the Rome Statute, any person... That aids and abets, or in any way encourages, um, or assists, or the commission of a war crime, with knowledge that that's happening, becomes complicit in it. Which means that they can also be prosecuted. And this is the thing that I said to you in the beginning, right? Um, That for far too long have we let politicians think that their job is some in in some way a game, that they can see war crimes happening on their screens. They can be told war crimes are happening, their advisors can tell them. And then some lobbyist comes from somewhere and says, well, actually, it's in your personal interest. You're not going to get funding for the next election. You're not going to get this. You're going to be called Mm. anti-Semitic. It's in your interest to toe the line, whatever the line may be. And they think that that just lasts five years or 10 years if they're lucky, Mm. right? And then they go off and join some hedge fund or some other company or some director and life carries on for them. That's not going to happen this time. And we will make sure that we will pursue people complicit in war crimes far beyond their political careers. And it's important that they understand that because part of what we have available to us is the law. Right. They may Lobbyists may have the power of lobby, the power of um, promotion, promoting them outside of the, political, or the power of giving them money or whatever it might be that makes them interested in um, lying to themselves and everybody else about what's going on. Mm-hmm. But we have the power of the law. And I think it's imp- it's incumbent on, on lawyers like myself and other international law lawyers that are working in this field to make sure that we pursue politicians yeah. for complicity in war crimes. It's really important that that happens. Can I ask you about uh,
3: the term genocide? Yeah. Would you call what's happening legally a genocide? And if so, how do we, you know, I understand the United Nations, one of its uh, basic Charter obligations is to prevent genocide. After the Second World War, of course, as you said, that became its 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 one of its reasons of existence. Um, what's the test to uh, to designate uh, what's happening in Gaza a genocide?
2: Okay, it's a really important question, yeah. and um, it's really important for me to give some preamble to this Please. as well. Okay, yeah. so genocide in common parlance has various different meanings, right? And one thing I've noted is that Israel, as a state, as, as the government, is very fearful of people designating what they're doing in Palestine as genocide. So mm-hmm. if you put a tweet up and use the word genocide in it, yeah. you get bots and all sorts of people attacking you for that. Yeah. And it's very clear that if you are talking about also World War II right. and what the Nazis did to the Jews in World War II and others in World War II, and you draw parallels, you again come under the same attack. And people people see that as being either somehow anti-Semitic, which I don't understand that it is, and I don't think it is, Mm. because what you're doing is you're comparing an action for an action. Um, Now, when I talk about genocide, I don't talk about genocide in sort of uh, a a popular narrative. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, when, When I talk about genocide, first of all, I need to explain that the correct arbitrator for what is and is not genocide is a court. Okay. You can only say, when you're talking about the legal definition of genocide, you can make the allegation. You can say that there's a risk of genocide. Yeah. You can say that um, there is evidence that the conditions that um, constitute genocide are met, mm-hmm. or there's evidence that they're met. Yeah. And then you pass that information to a uh, law enforcement agency who will then hopefully pass it to a court, who will then prosecute, potentially. And that's where the genocide decision comes from. Yeah. And so this is why you'll see the United Nations guidance on using the word genocide is that you can talk about the war crimes, you can talk about the human rights violations, you can talk about the conditions being met, you can talk about the risk of genocide, but it's for a court to determine whether... Geno- and that's standard. That's been standard UN um, policy for a long time. Right. It's not something new. Now, when, 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 what I will say to you is that at ICGP, we are investigating the number of war crimes. Yeah. We are also investigating genocide, and um, there is a, in my view, in my legal opinion, there is a clear risk of genocide. Okay. The conditions for genocide, in my view, have also been met, and that means a number of different things. And we can talk about the G- Genocide Convention in a moment. Right. But I'm going to just read out what genocide is. Sure. Okay. And then I'm going to talk about the intention. So it comes in two parts. It comes in the action, and it comes in the intention, and that. In in any criminal act or in most criminal acts, you have both, you have the action and you have the intention behind it. And the intention behind it determines whether it's just a standard war crime. I mean, using the word standard kind of like takes away from a war crime. Yes. Or whether it's something more than that, such as a crime against humanity or genocide. So this is what Article 6 um, of the Rome Statute states. So um, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, Racial or religious groups, as such, killing members of the group that's one, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, the debili- um, de- uh, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring uh, about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of that is deconstructing on purpose a health infrastructure of a state, okay. and that has two parts to it. First part of it is that you immediately prevent people from receiving health care but yeah. also you once the fighting stops, you continue to keep those people in a situation where they can't remedy whatever illness they've got mm-hmm. and, and disease runs rife, which contributes to this, this act, which yeah. is why it falls within this definition. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within a group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So, so that's the act. Now I can say that with the work that we've been doing at ICJP, um, we have collated sufficient evidence to show already that each of these acts have been made out, right. okay? So we've got sufficient evidence to bring a prima facie case for that. Hmm. The difficult case in genocide usually is the intention, right? Yes. So how do I know what's going inside the mind of the perpetrator? Right. And, the, and the way that you do that in, I mean, I mean one of my specialties in the United Kingdom is national security and counterterrorism, So I work in that sphere. And how you prosecute a terrorist How you decide whether the person who creates a bomb and then goes into a building to blow it up, how do you know whether that person is annoyed with his co-workers because he used to work there, doing it because he's a far-right terrorist, doing it because he's an Islamist terrorist, doing it because he's some other kind of terrorist? How how do you know that it's an ideological motivation or not just that he's angry at his workmates? And the way you do that is you look at the material available around that individual. So what happens in these uh, terrorism prosecutions is that House gets raided, yes. right? Computers get taken. What's the person been looking at on the internet? What's he been saying to his friends? What messages has he been sending to various people? When he's been buying things, has he been buying them, taking instructions from a certain group? So that, that's how you work that yes. out, right? And in, in British law, we call it mindset material. Right. Now, when we're looking at genocide and we're looking at Israel, we've been also looking at the same kind of material. In, but when you give um, a person impunity from prosecution when they think that nothing is going to happen to them they become quite bold yes. right? so they don't necessarily hide what they're doing in encrypted files on their computer or messages on WhatsApp or some other encrypted uh, messaging site yeah. they tell you they give speeches right? they, yeah. they, they tell you about it they yeah. tell us all, talk talk about it openly so what things have we seen yes. that um, caused me to think that we have a prima facie case to bring a complaint of genocide against Israel well we have statements made by Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah. senior politicians in Israel, including and not not least um, commentators, but also military personnel and politicians in the Knesset. But just focus on the command and control structure, right? Because that's where it matters. You can have a commentator say all oh, kinds of nonsense. Mm. They may be encouraging genocide, but they may not be com- part of actually conducting it. Yes. Palestinians by senior command and control um, members have been referred to as human animals. There's been no distinction drawn in some of the speeches between civilians and terrorists, right? So they've been all lumped into the same category. Yeah. But most importantly, Commander-in-Chief Benjamin Netanyahu has raised biblical speech yeah. to talk about Palestinians. And he referred to Amalek. Yes. Amalek being this dark, evil spirited group of people, and how to deal with them. And what he said, what what not he said, what, what Amalek refers to and how you deal with Amalek is you kill every man, woman and child in infant suckling, ox and calf. And, and that, that to me is the, that single reference to Amalek yeah. by the person that's actually in command of Israel in terms of military sense in command. Yeah. Who has command control responsibility for what's going on there along with the war cabinet. Yeah. Um, is for me evidence that what is happening in on the ground in Gaza is... Evidence of genocide and a genocidal intent. Now, there's other ways you can look at it as well, mm. right? You can look at what has happened on the ground. Okay, so, you, so you, when you we're making this argument, so I'm, in a way, in a, in a legal basis, lucky to have this boldness from the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators, mm. where they're prepared to say, "This is what we're going to do. This is what we think. This is what we think about these individuals." Yes. But just look at the ground. Just look at the hospital infrastructure completely destroyed. Absolutely. Doctors, nurses, medics killed and arrested and detained and tortured. Right? You've got the cover of well, this is done because it's a, a Hamas base, but there's no real evidence of that. You've got doctors that have come out of the region that are talking about the fact that they haven't seen Hamas infrastructure in the hospitals. Yeah. You have doctors on record saying Hamas must have a different medical infrastructure because we haven't been asked to treat these people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and then you've just got you just. Look at some of the videos that are coming out, and just look at the wanton destruction across the whole of the region. Yeah. Whole residential areas just destroyed and leveled. So you can look at what has actually happened to people on the ground. Just look at the death toll. And when you're looking at the death toll, look at the number of women and children that are killed. Mm. And forget forget for a moment the men. Forget for a moment the um, women. Just the children. It can't be an argument to say that these children were members of Hamas, right? Yeah. And so if you've got that on your as your evidence, you're you're building a pretty strong case to say that um, what Israel is engaged in is uh, an act of genocide. And certainly there's a risk of genocide. And that has implications in the genocide convention too. Right.
3: So it seems to me uh, that you're putting forward this case as prima facie evidence that the potential for genocide is there. Um, However, Um, it seems like it's a very slow process. Um, What are the other means, according to the Rome Statute, Mm. where a genocide clause can be triggered? How else do we expedite the process, possibly?
2: Well, it's it's not so much the Rome Statute. So the Rome Statute, as much criminal law, comes after the event, right? Ah. So uh, Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor Mm. of the ICC, has a quite important role, because he can make preventative statements. He can say do not do this because this looks like it's going to be this so he's the chief prosecutor yeah, of the, the head ICC. Prosecutor, ICC. Right. so so that's the but, but really the icc comes after it's an accountability structure ah, right okay. so so you, you you the crime happens then you
3: prosecute But then, why did the ICC instigate an investigation at the very beginning of the Ukraine?
2: I'll come back to the Ukraine in a moment. But I I just want to answer your question about the Genocide Convention. So, what you are referring to, or I think you're referring to, is Ah. something called the Genocide Convention. Right. And the Genocide Convention is a treaty signed by by states, majority of states in the world, where they agree after World War II that genocide um, is something that should be dealt with mm-hmm. if it happens but also it's so heinous it's a, it's a crime referred to as Jus Kogan an absolute crime right? right that it should be prevented if there's a risk of it at the time at the time yeah. right and so what happens is that um, any signature to genocide oh by the way the genocide convention um, is uh, whilst the majority of states accept jurisdiction under the genocide convention yes it applies to states that didn't sign it as well right. because of the nature of the crime this is really important Right? It doesn't really matter for our purposes of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But what's important here is that um, a party to the Genocide Convention, if it recognises the things that I've been talking about, which they, I think they do, right, they can trigger the, um, the Genocide Convention. What that means is that they can bring a complaint to the International Court of Justice mm-hmm. to say that we think, as a party to the Genocide Convention, that this state, Israel, is now at risk of committing genocide. And we want the International Court of Justice to take, um, to make a determination on that, which will take a long time, uh-huh. right? But we, in the meantime, we want interim measures, which are like an injunction, right? And we want the International Court of Justice to issue effectively orders, which are binding on every country. That's part of the International Court, Justice, what Israel is. And, and we want the International Court, and um, we want Israel to stop doing these acts and we want it to put these measures in place immediately to prevent this risk of genocide. And then that, that happens like an injunction partway through your legal proceedings. Yes. And then the International Court of Justice will continue with its deliberation and make a determination as to whether Israel actually was committing an act of genocide or not. Right. And, and, and those interim measures and that determination at the end is legally binding on the state it's applied to. Really? And what that means is that action can be taken at state level. So each, pe- each member of the genocide convention, each party to the genocide convention yeah. will be obligated to act on that. So issue sanctions against Israel. And it can be action that the Security Council of the UN and the General Assembly of the UN is really important. Yeah. Now that hasn't happened yet, but it should have done. Uh, when you
3: say that hasn't happened yet, so uh, one route uh, to triggering that determination or that genocide convention is, of course, the Security Council. But another route, can it be general assembly members can any country in the world
2: so we saw this with the rohingya
3: really right so we saw this where
2: yeah where gambia triggered the genocide convention and Uh, brought a claim to the icc really and what the icc then did sorry not the icc the icj the international court of justice right and with the international court of justice it did it did issue interim measures yes uh against the government that it considered that the complaint was made against Myanmar, right and so that happened and so there is no reason why a state can't do that now. Why don't they? Oh, that's a good question. And I wish I could answer that. Really? Um, the only thing that I can say about it is that they should.
3: So, I mean, just to read in between the lines, so Turkey tomorrow, Qatar or you know, UAE or Saudi Arabia, you know, who have been vocal to various degrees, they could trigger this genocide uh, convention and get the ball rolling if they if they wanted to.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's important to say that in a time where we have twenty thousand plus people die, yeah, right, in a matter of weeks, yeah, um, it is incumbent on states to stop dealing with this in just rhetoric, yeah, right. And I'm not taking away from I'm sure. Many states are doing various things and thinking about it slowly. Yeah, but it's really important for action, and that action has to come right now. So,
3: in the sense of dealing with the immediate carnage, the Genocide Convention is really the go-to international law that one needs to be thinking the about the trigger. Yeah, the trigger. So, the ICC—it's um, it, really for post-event. The ICC is, is to is to find some uh, some closure to to investigate what's happened in the past. Now. Let's come back then to the Ukraine example. Yeah. I mean, Kareem Khan, who's the chief prosecutor, did begin a investigation into Russia's actions in Ukraine. And, and I remember it's within a year that uh, a, I don't know if it's the right word, a determination was, was, was achieved or was, was concluded. And um, um, uh, yes, the, you know, and, and, and some action was taken, at least legally, against Putin and, and some members of his cabinet. Talk me through that. What, what was sort well,
2: of When I said to you, in answer to your earlier questions yeah. about there being a framework of international law, yeah. and that framework of international law is really good, and it works, Yeah. well, Ukraine is the example of that, okay. right? So here you have a situation where the ICC, which is mandated to prosecute war criminals, didn't do it itself, by the way. It went to the Ukraine, okay. and it partnered with Ukrainian prosecutors And the ICC supported prosecutions, right? I mean, it's just mind blowing how effective it was. Yeah. Initiated prosecutions, supported prosecutions by Ukrainian prosecutors in a war zone Mm. during a war. Yes. Arrested, prosecuted, and convicted alleged war criminals, which then became war criminals. Yes. And that happened. And that's why I say to you there is a structure that works, and that's the ICC working properly. But is As that it was the ICC
3: working in a politicized way?
2: I mean, totally. these were Western enemies. And so, of course, it did go after. So what, what I can say to you is that when you're looking at the ICC doing what it's doing, yes. you've got the backing of Western states, the United Kingdom, the United States, yeah. Europe, supporting the ICC. In fact, the United States wanting to fund the ICC to do this work, even though you'd almost think that the United States and the ICC were complete enemies because of the way the United States looks at the ICC, right? Yes. And now you've got a situation where the United States, well, actually, this is really good. Now, this is an important task. So it makes it easy. Mm. So the ICC prosecutor goes, oh, great. The, the world that generally talks to me is supporting this work. So not only can I help to prosecute, I can also issue an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. Right. And he did that, Yes. right? Now we've got a different scenario. Yeah. So the ICC is operating upstream. Mm. It's operating and looking at a state that's protected mm. by the United States, it's protected by the United Kingdom, it's protected by Europe Yeah. quite fiercely. Yes. Now, in that situation, what does this mean for the ICC? It means for the ICC that if it does not do its job properly, okay, it can do it slowly because it's working upstream now. Yeah. Well, but it has to do what it's supposed to do. If it doesn't, it's existential for it. Yes. It becomes meaningless, a meaningless entity, yeah. a completely meaningless entity if it fails to hold Israelis accountable for what's happening in Gaza. And I'm just going to add to that, yeah. Palestinians are accountable for war crimes that they've committed or potentially have committed as well. Right. right. This is not just a, it's a, a one-suit-fits-all situation. Now, if it doesn't do that, what is it? It becomes an imperialistic tool for the West. And it can't allow itself to be that because if it does become that, yeah. there's no point working with it anymore.
3: Hey, I'm, I'm getting from what you're saying, but you still hold out that the ICC is not an imperialistic tool. I mean, I remember uh, in the early, the heydays of the ICC, where African after African was, was being tried and prosecuted. There was a, a lawyer, and I'm, I'm sure you, you're familiar with him, who said that this is a court that's been set up to try black people in Africa. That mm. seems like what it's, what, what it's there to do. Um, you know, it's back to that original question. You, you still, I feel, have some confidence that maybe the ICC can develop some autonomy beyond uh, the big powers, beyond at least the Western powers within the Security Council.
2: I think it has to. I, it's not so much my confidence, <laughs> right? It's yes. more, it's, it's a crisis for the West and for the world, actually, the international community. Yeah. Beyond this short-sightedness, if it doesn't do that, if it doesn't do that, what yeah. what are we really saying? We're seeing and saying that Western values, the values and the rules and the systems that we learned in World War II now are meaningless. Yeah. There is definitely and genuinely a, dis, a, 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 a separation between the political class and everybody else, and what matters to normal people. Everyday people doesn't matter to our political class. And then, then the question comes, what matters to the political class? Mm. Money, wealth, self-interest? Yes. Exploration of oil off Gaza's coast? Is that really where we've ended up? Yeah. And that becomes a problem because I don't think people in the United Kingdom, in the United States, are prepared to accept that anymore. So, so that, that's, that, starts to, that begins to be the unravelling of the fabric of our society, Yes, right? If, if you're not prepared to stand by the values you've told me are really important, why should I? And that's really dangerous. That's yeah. dangerous for national security across the globe. Yeah. And that's the, f- and you know, every system has its decline. We can't afford that to happen. If we want to carry on living in the way that we live and have nice cars and have mobile phones, iPads and phones and, Want our children to be educated and want them to go to school in safety. Yeah. We can't allow that to happen, and we can't allow our politicians, mm. our political class, to steal that from normal people. Yeah. Can't allow that, not yeah. for one second.
3: Uh, previous, in a previous answer, you talked about the global south, and you know there may be a movement that points out this barefaced hypocrisy, possibly in, in you know in, when it comes to international law. Is, is there more than just a a rhetorical movement? I mean, do you see moves in in the global south where there is a discussion about the efficacy i suppose of of international law and, and maybe a, a movement to change and adapt and maybe strengthen international law
2: yeah i mean we can just see that in the ceasefire vote the general assembly Very can't true. we right you yeah. can just see it; it's happening yeah so one of the dangers that we have in living in the united kingdom and the united states yeah. and europe is that we see ourselves as being the everything in the world and actually in a you saw how it dwindled down to just basically the United States, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, th- this is an important lesson to learn. What do people want around the globe? Mm. Everybody wants their security. Everybody wants education. Everybody wants, wants a welfare system. Everybody wants a health system. Yeah. Everybody wants their governments to work towards that. If part of that is proper values and proper rule and proper order, yeah. and if we're not getting that, there's no reason to think that the decline of the West in this, it, by, by turning its back on these values, means a decline of the world. We've seen it already from China to Russia to BRIC states, India. They're on the rise, right? And there's no reason why these states might say, well, actually, you know, you've had your time. Mm. L- let's create this new world order, but let's make it where we are the arbitrators of what's right and wrong and not you. That's where we're heading. You can see it how it was happening before the Gaza war. Absolutely.
3: Can I ask you about UK law? Um, we know that Hamas is uh, a banned, organ- a prescribed organisation here in the UK. Um, and and what does that really mean in terms of its prescription? Can can a Muslim, for example, or a non-Muslim defend the actions of Hamas or question the narrative about the 7th of October? Or, you know, on a Piers Morgan interview, can you know someone push back and say, well, we don't want to condemn uh, the you know, the actions of a, of a lawful resistance, in inverted commas. You know, how far can someone argue the case of Palestinian resistance when it comes to Hamas?
2: So, so let's talk about Hamas first. Mm. Hamas is a proscribed terrorist organization. Sure. That's simple, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's in the United Kingdom. What does that mean? It means that supporting the actions of Hamas yeah. is... Uh, or supporting Hamas even really. is a criminal offence, really. right? Um, providing money to Hamas is a criminal offence. Yeah. Glorifying Hamas? Propagating their material is really. a criminal offence, yeah. right? So the, the idea of prescription is where a government decides this is a problematic organisation for us because it's engaged in uh, terrorist activity defined under the Terrorism Act 2000 in Section oh. 1. Yeah. And so we, don't, we, we, we want to make that very clear. We want to make that very clear. And so yep. what we'll do is we'll prescribe it. And it's short-circuits the test. So now you don't have to prove that every action that anybody does in support of the prescribed organization is a terrorist action yeah. because the Terrorism Act automatically makes that the case because you, right. all, you, start from the, you don't start from zero, yeah. you start from five, where it's accepted it's a terrorist organization. That's really important. Yeah. So um, lots of people are falling into this trap by supporting Hamas, the actions which they see as resistance, yes. and then being criminalized for that by being arrested or um, being canceled or whatever yeah. the, the, the relevant position is. Yeah. It's quite a serious thing because if you send money to Hamas or you, you, you call for support for Hamas or you wear its insignia and its logos, yeah. you are committing a very serious, you become a terrorist. you the prosecutor. You become a terrorist. Really? if you're convicted in the terrorism act, you are a terrorist, really? right? Yeah. So that—that's. I mean, you can see it in a different context really, really, really clearly. It, it makes sense where people are attacking the United Kingdom, right? And then you're supporting that entity. Yeah. You, black and white, it's very sure. clear. Yeah. And that's what, happens, that, that's what happens when you make an organization prescribe. Now, there's, an, there's, a, there's another characteristic of that, which it stifles conversation and debate and discussion about it. Because you can no longer say that anything that Hamas does in normal commentary is acceptable you can't say it because that would be calling support for it yeah you can say that Palestinians have a right to resist. to right to resist yeah it's an important context here though because the in the same way that people say that Israel has a right to self-defense Palestinians have the right to self-defense mm-hmm. now I'm going to expand on that yes right so let's start with let's start with the occupied Palestinian territories. Yeah. And I paused because I wanted to put the word occupied in there because that's what we refer to, OPT, right? Yeah. They're occupied, which means what? It means that there is a state that has power and control over another group or state or territory. So it's occupied. When you're in that position as an occupying power, you are in an offensive position, Right. The people on the ground are in a defensive position. To make it for the argument, if Palestinians were occupying Israel, Mm. the Israelis would be in a defensive position as the occupied people. So it's it's, it's not a a racial thing, if you like, or a religious thing. It's just simply the reality of the facts of the situation. You control a, a group of people, you are occupying them. Now, what that means is that in international law, Two very important things. Article 51 of the UN Charter means that a state does not have the right to self-defense as a state. Really important. Not the right to self-defense. is a different thing, which I'll come to in a minute. Yeah. As a state, if it's in an attacking position, because the people that have the right to self-defense are the people defending who are the Palestinians, right? right. In international law, the people that are occupied have the right to repel the occupier. Even through violent means. Even through violent means. Really. They have to do it lawfully. Hmm. This what, is important. So let me explain mean? this yeah. to you. The, the right to self-defense has to be proportionate and it has to be reasonable. So an example of this is that an occupied person, a Palestinian, does not have the right to go into another country and kill every woman and child it sees. It doesn't have the right to set fire to everything. It doesn't have the right to do this. It does have the right to defend itself yeah. against an IDF soldier that's attacking it. And this is a a, a simple, standard concept. Mm. Okay. So, but Israel does have a right to self-defense. What does that mean? It means that it has the right to defend itself lawfully from an unlawful attack. Yeah. It doesn't have the right to defend itself in an occupied position from a lawful attack because it's already in an attacking position. Yeah. And this, is, this, is, this debate gets muddled quite a lot by people, right. because what they're talking about often to say, Israel does not have the right to self-defense, Israel has the right to self-defense. is a talk about the UN Charter, Article 51, r- relatively irrelevant to Israel's right to self-defense. But if a Palestinian is attacking Israel, repelling the occupation, that's lawful. Yeah. If it goes beyond what is lawful, then that Palestinian wouldn't have that right either. It's a little bit complicated, but wouldn't have that right either. Mm -hmm. All these things Mm -hmm. are arbitrated by in a court of law. That's where they should be arbitrated. What we are concentrating on in ICJP is to make sure that we build prima facie cases to show that there is evidence of war crimes. If the other party then, whether it's Hamas or whether it's the IDF, want to raise the concept of self-defense, that's in response to the prima facie case, the evidence put against it so right. if for example we arrested um hamas operatives and we accuse them of a war crime yeah. it's within their gift to say well i was acting to repel occupation it's within right. their gift to say i was acting in self-defense that might or might not be accepted by a court of law and it's the same the way around
3: can i ask you about we've seen a number of uh british-born uh israelis or yeah. british-born who have israeli passports who've gone to israel to fight uh for the IDF and um they inevitably will return. And of course, many Muslims have pointed out the hypocrisy of that. You know, you know, correctly or incorrectly, a lot of Muslims went abroad to fight with groups that are designated terrorist groups or proscribed organizations, like ISIS being, being one of them. You had the case of uh, Shabina Begum, who didn't actually go out to fight, but her passport was revoked by the then, then uh, Home Secretary, Sajid uh, Javed. So, you know, we've got this belief in the Muslim community, there's almost like a, a dual system here, a dual body of legal, of law, where Muslims are being judged far more harshly than, say, young Jewish people who go to, to Israel to, to fight. I mean, how does that, how does what I've said there, beyond sort of the the social media soundbite, how does what I've said there compare to what you understand of, of domestic law? Well, I,
2: mean, I mean, straightforward off the bat, my view is that if a British citizen goes and joins a foreign state army, yeah. um, whether a single citizen or dual citizen, I think they're committing a criminal act. Really? Right. Yeah, I do. And um, I'm preparing cases with regards to that as we speak. Okay. Right? So, so mm-hmm. p- there is a fiction created by our government, yeah. which is that it's okay for a British citizen to go and fight in uh, the IDF for t- a number of reasons. One, because they might have dual citizenship. Secondly, because they might be, um, uh, they might have um, the they're conscripted. They they have to go. Mm. Um, And thirdly, because it's Palestine is not a state because Britain doesn't recognise it as a state. Yeah, all of that's wrong, and and I think the British government's created this fiction, and I'll be challenging that in court in the next coming months. So what 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 I consider here is not so much. I, I don't think it's necessarily the parallels between people that went to join ISIS. Let's talk about it in a different way. How would the British government feel about British citizens going to join Palestinian resistance? Not the prescribed organization, Mm. but the non-prescribed Palestinian resistance, who have a right in international law to defend themselves against occupation. Would they have a problem with that? What about joining the Lebanese army? What about joining the Yemeni army? What about joining the Syrian army or the Iranian army? Would they be okay with that? Because surely, if it's okay for them to go and join, um, surely if it's okay for them to go and join the uh, IDF, that same standard would have to apply to British citizens going to fight in those other armies. And what does that mean? There's 3,000. This is what we've been told by the um, IDF: 3,000 British citizens gone to fight with the IDF. Mm -hmm. What does that mean when all these people return? What does that mean for community cohesion in the United Kingdom? What does Mm -hmm. that mean for people capable of um, such actions in a foreign country coming back to a country where they're not part of the IDF anymore. And and also, what happens to these British citizens? The the United Kingdom has a responsibility to, one, prevent these British citizens dying, because significant numbers of Israeli soldiers are dying out there. And what about perpetrating war crimes? Because there is a significant likelihood that if you're a British citizen and you're flying out to join the IDF, to fight in Gaza, you're going to be not only complicit, but actually engaged in potential war crimes. Mm. We've seen and we've collected at the ICHP videos of Brits out there that are talking about the war crimes that they've been complicit in potentially. We categorize them as war crimes. They may categorize them as something else. So you've got this responsibility and certainly regardless of whether or not they're allowed to join the IDF, if they come back to the United Kingdom and there's evidence of them being complicit in war crimes, they're going to be prosecuted for that by... The British Police and Crown Prosecution Service.
3: Tayyip, tell me about uh, what happened in 2009 with uh, uh, Zippy Livni. I think the um, uh, Israeli Foreign Secretary who was uh, subject to a High Court arrest warrant here in the UK.
2: Yeah, so I was part of a legal team really? um, that led a uh, legal action following Operation Cast Lead, which was an Israeli attack on Gaza again. Mm where there was serious allegations of war crimes uh, against the Israeli leadership. And Zipi Libni was one of a number of members of the Israeli War Cabinet. And um, what we did in London is we gathered evidence from the ground in Gaza. Mm-hmm. We put that evidence together. I, I mean, it was, very, it was a very uh, um, specific allegation on a police station, a civilian, uh, an attack on a civilian police station. Right. Um, In Gaza, where the the police officers were on parade and Israeli warplanes came and bombed them, flew off. And then the rest of the police officers came out of the um, police station to give aid. And then the warplane came back and killed everybody or killed many people. And it was the first strike. And what was very significant, what that meant was that um, we could show that the war cabinet had made a decision to uh, greenlight that particular strike which meant the members of the war cabinet had direct command and control of that first strike. A really important situation. Now, um, many commentators, particularly those that are influenced by um, the Israeli government's uh, messaging through the embassy here and elsewhere, mm. um, will say that Israel doesn't commit war crimes. Israel is a very sophisticated system. Israel has, um, just is the most moral army. You know, we've heard yeah. all of this, yeah. notwithstanding what you see with your own eyes on the TV. But anyway... Um, so, Zippy Livni, as an example, that case as an example is really important because what happened in there is that we took our evidence package to a British court, the chief magistrate, a senior judge. Yeah. And we asked him to issue an arrest warrant for war crimes against Zippy Livny because she was about to arrive in the United Kingdom. And he looked at the evidence and he pained over it, I'll tell you. And he issued an arrest warrant, wow. and that's really important yeah. because what that meant was when when you apply when when a police officer arrests somebody, it's a lower standard than applying for an arrest warrant in court. So what mm. that means is that a police officer can arrest somebody if two conditions are met. One is that he has reasonable grounds to suspect a crime has been committed. One that's one, and the second that it's necessary. Now, if those two conditions are met, he can arrest you, and then he can take you to a police station, interview, and go. Oh, sorry, made a mistake, off you go. Mm. The arrest is different. In the arrest warrant, you have to show a prosecutable case, a prima facie case. There has to be sufficient evidence already to show that a crime has potentially been committed. Right. Not that you've got enough evidence to suspect one that's actually been committed. Mm. And that's the test that we've made. It's a much higher test. And why that's important is because when you arrest them in an arrest warrant, they don't go to the police station process for the police to gather more evidence. Mm. They get taken to court directly to be prosecuted. Wow. Okay. And that's really important. Yeah. Now, that's what we did. We got the arrest warrant. The police, uh, as we understand it, did chase somebody in London, and it, we were told that it wasn't Zipulivni. Whether it was or wasn't is another issue. My view of this is that um, the British government then worked extraordinarily hard to make sure that we would not be able to do that so easily, again, to an Israeli politician. And here's the travesty, right? You You have a situation where a court decides that there is enough evidence for somebody to be tried for war crimes, and the British government politically interferes with that, provides that individual impunity and immunity to prevent that from happening again, and then changes a law to allow government interference in the next war crimes application in a court. So now you have to get permission from the Attorney General DPP before, you, before, you, before a warrant's going to be issued. Yeah. And, and I always think that this is an important lesson for us lawyers, And for those people that recognize alleged war crimes by Israel, Mm. that it is possible to hold Israeli politicians and military personnel accountable in the West, including in Britain, Mm. because they never know when a lawyer, an attorney general, a judge, the police or the prosecution will actually do their job properly. Mm. You never know when that's going to happen because it could happen at any time. But also the travesty is that can you imagine the difference today if... Um, a British court had have accepted it, hadn't been blocked, Zippelivny had got arrested, and what? Mm-hmm. Gone to court and been tried for war crimes. And then a court would have determined whether or not Zippelivny was, compl- was, was a, um, actually a perpetrator of war crimes or not. Mm-hmm. Think about the difference today. Because if she'd have been found not guilty, that would have sent an important message that Israel was allowed to do what it did to the police station in Operation Castlead. But if she'd been found guilty... It would have sent a message that war crimes by anybody, friend or foe, ally or anybody else is not going to be accepted. And it would make politicians think twice. That's why this set of laws is really important. And that's why we've got to do whatever we can to make sure that they're effective and that people accused of war crimes are held accountable.
3: One final question, you. Um, I On social media, on Twitter, there was, or X as it's called now, there was a... Uh, a a student uh, at a university in America who sent out a message saying, you know, I've spent three years studying international law. I now realize it was a waste of time. Um, Like, do you agree to a degree with that sentiment?
2: If you remove the system of law that arbitrates actions between people, the only thing left is violence. Mm. So I can't agree with that.
3: Do you think that, would you encourage a young Muslim you know, who's watching this show and wants to go and study law, would you encourage them to study international law despite
2: all of the hurdles and the challenges? <laughs> Apart from you, there's no money in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's no money in no. it, yeah. um, As a lawyer, there's more lucrative things to study, but right. no, on a serious note. Um, yeah, I, I would. I think it's important for people with various different backgrounds to engage in this system of law that, We all live under and to be um, parts of the mechanisms that use that law to arbitrate between other people, because otherwise we run the risk of seeing everything through a single prison. And we can't have that. We we have to make sure that where the people that are here already and the ones that are potentially failing us are held to account as well. And if the only way to do that is to engage in it, to work in it, to promote it, to protect it, then I say that that's what should happen
3: uh thank you very much for your time today.
2: Thank you very much.
3: Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Hi,
1: I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.